Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Yale Vascular Review. We're your hosts, Ocean and Kairi. We love to see how many of you are listening to the episodes and engaging with our posts. We hope to keep providing high-level summaries of the newest research each month and hope this will help you all stay up to date with the latest advances in vascular surgery. This month, we will be looking at peripheral arterial disease. As this is a vast and highly reported subject, we will be focusing on endovascular intervention-based papers for this episode. We reviewed papers over the last five months from Journal of Vascular Surgery, Annals of Vascular Surgery, and European Journal of Vascular Surgery. And thank you to both the Annals of Vascular Surgery and European Journal of Vascular Surgery for liking our tweet about the last episode. We appreciate your continued support. Stay tuned for another guest speaker later in this episode who will not only talk to us about the results of the PROMISE-1 trial, but will also be sharing his advice for those applying into vascular surgery this year. Over the last five months, 44 papers looked at PAD, and 20 of these looked at endovascular interventions. And we have a few international randomized control trials to discuss, so let's get started. The first paper we are discussing today is titled 24-Month Outcomes of Drug-Coated Balloon in Diabetic Patients in the Biolux P3 Registry, a subgroup analysis. And this was published in the Annals of Vascular Surgery by the Biolux P3 Global Registry Investigators, um, whose authors include Dr. Mwipatai from Royal Perth Hospital in Australia and others from Denmark, Singapore, Austria, and Germany. Biolux P3 was a prospective international multi-center registry from 41 centers. This study is a 24-month subgroup analysis of patients with diabetes with infrainguinal lesions treated with the Paseo 18 Lux drug-coated balloon. Of about 900 patients in the registry, over 400 had diabetes. About 50% had CLTI. Of those, about a fourth had infrapopetial lesions, while another fourth were treated for instant restenosis. Overall device success was 99.7%. Freedom from major adverse events was 91% at 6 months, 85% at 12 months, and 80% at 24 months. Freedom from clinical-driven target lesion revascularization was 96%, 92%, and 87% at 6, 12, and 24 months. All-cause mortality at 24 months in diabetics was 16%, and major target limb amputation was 6%, which was significantly higher than in non-diabetics. At 24 months, 82% of patients had improved by one or more Rutherford class. They concluded that treatment of a diabetic patient population with the Paseo 18 Lux drug-coated balloon resulted in high efficacy and low complication rates, despite their multitude of comorbidities. Wow, these balloons sound pretty luxe. Yeah, so Lux. All right, next paper published in the European Journal of Vascular Surgery, which was actually the editor's choice for the October issue, is titled Cost-Effectiveness of Primary Stenting in the Superficial Femoral Artery for Intermittent Claudication, two-year results of a randomized multicenter trial. And this is from Dr. Jerf, Dr. Lindgren, and group from Sweden. 100 patients with intermittent claudication due to SFA lesions were randomized to stent group, including treatment with primary stenting, best medical treatment, and exercise advice, or to control group with best medical treatment and exercise advice alone. Patients were recruited at seven hospitals in Sweden. The mean cost per patient was 11,000 euros in the stent group and 5,000 euros in the control group, resulting in a difference of 6,000 euros per patient between the groups. The difference in mean quality-adjusted life years, or quali, between the two groups was 0.26 in favor of the stent group. 
which resulted in an incremental cost-effectiveness ratio of 24,000 euros per quali. They concluded that the costs associated with primary stenting in the SFA for the treatment of intermittent claudication were higher than for exercise advice and best medical therapy alone. With concurrent improvement in health-related quality of life, primary stenting was a cost-effective treatment option according to the Swedish National Guidelines and approaching the UK's National Institute for Health and Care Excellence Threshold for willingness to pay. Kiri, hearing about all these cool RCTs is improving my quality of life. (laughs) And we're not done yet. You want to tell us about the next one? Sure. This next paper was published in Journal of Vascular Surgery. It was titled Long-Term Safety and Efficacy of Angioplasty of Femoropalpatial Artery Disease with Drug-Coated Balloons from the ACOART-1 Trial. This was published by Dr. Xu and Dr. Guo's group from Chinese PLA General Hospital in Beijing. In this prospective multi-center randomized control trial, 200 patients with severe femoropalpatial disease were randomized to undergo percutaneous transluminal angioplasty with a drug-coated balloon or an uncoated balloon. During the five-year follow-up period, freedom from all-cause mortality was 83% in the DCB group compared with 73% in the uncoated balloon group. Freedom from clinically driven target lesion revascularization was 78% in the DCB group versus 59% in the UCB group. Coronary heart disease and provisional femoropalpatial artery lesion stenting were associated with an increased mortality risk, and the nominal paclitaxel dose was not associated with mortality during the five-year follow-up period. They found no significant differences in five-year mortality between patients with femoropalpatial disease treated with DCB versus UCB. The clinical benefit of drug-coated balloon versus uncoated balloons in terms of clinically driven target lesion revascularization persisted for the five-year period. Continuing on the theme of endo-revascularization, this next paper published in the Annals of Vascular Surgery titled Incidence of Major Atherothrombotic Vascular Events Among Patients with Peripheral Artery Disease After Revascularization included Dr. Bonaka from University of Colorado and colleagues as authors. Patients aged 50 years and above with PAD who underwent peripheral revascularization were identified from Optum Clinformatics Datamark Claims Database from 2014 to 2019. About 38,000 patients were included. 6,500 had a major atherothrombotic vascular event during a medium follow-up of one year. The composite major atherothrombotic vascular and venous thromboembolism incidence rates were about 14 and 2 per 100 patient years, respectively. Around 40% of patients experienced subsequent revascularizations. Patients with a post-revascularization major atherothrombotic event had significantly higher rates of subsequent revascularizations and venous thromboembolism versus those without. Hey, Ocean, let's go for a quick walk. But we're recording right now, Kiri. I know, but did you hear about the effects of exercise mode on arterial stiffness in symptomatic peripheral artery disease patients, a randomized crossover clinical trial in the Annals of Vascular Surgery by Dr. Diaz Santos and Dr. Andrade Lima from Brazil? Ah, okay. Let's walk and talk then. Tell me more about this study. Twelve patients with symptomatic PAD underwent four experimental sessions in random order, walking exercise, resistance exercise, combined exercise, and control, which was resting in an exercise room. Ambulatory arterial stiffness index was obtained during ambulatory period after each session. 
This index was lower in the resistance exercise group compared to other sessions, with 75% of patients presenting lower indices after. No difference was found between the other three groups. The ABI was negatively correlated with the resistance and walking exercise group's net effect, but no correlation was found with combined exercise. Wait, Kiri, who is that I see down the street? Oh, it's Alex. Hi, Alex. Nice to run into you on our walk. Oh, great to see you guys. How are you doing? Good. Alex is our amazing vascular intern. Alex, do you want to tell everyone a little bit about yourself and how your intern year is going? Well, uh, intern year is a whirlwind, uh, but it's been great. I think uh, it, it's really nice to see some of these other services and some of the tips and tricks they do that you can uh, hopefully transfer over to vascular surgery down the road. So I grew up in Northern California. Um, I was originally planning to work uh, as a pilot in medevac, hopefully. So I was doing some work in EMS and then unfortunately fell in love with medicine and uh, had to go back to a post-bac. Um, but that worked out really well because I was, I was lucky enough to meet my, my wonderful wife, Megan, there. And uh, we snuck in a little pre-COVID wedding. And now we have an amazing daughter named Mia, uh, who our, our little dog has begrudgingly come to accept as his uh, younger sibling. And Alex is actually on a busy trauma surgery rotation right now, so we really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Of course, I'll be uh, sneaking over there after this. <laughs> so Alex, you just went through the application process last year. Could you share maybe one to two pieces of advice for the applicants this year? Yeah, um, I guess I, I got a lot of good advice. I, I, what stood out to me, I think, is it's all about the people. Vascular is such a small world, um, and I think finding your fit in a program is really about finding people you want to work with. Uh, the training, I think, across all these programs is... Uh, wonderful, and you're going to get the skills you need to work as a vascular surgeon. Um, other things that were helpful for me in narrowing down was, I think, looking at what programs uh, had certain research opportunities I was interested in, uh, since that was an area I was looking to pursue. And then um, sort of back to people having access and being close by your family or an airport so you can get to go see people. Um, I've done several years of long-distance relationships uh, with my wife, and uh, I think being able to get back and see her uh, made me appreciate that it was important to be able to go see the rest of my family wherever we ended up. Thanks. That's so helpful. Yeah, of course. Do you guys want to hear about this exciting trial? Um, it's called Promise One Trial, and it was in this month's issue of JVS. Yeah, go ahead. Wonderful. Well, I happen to have a copy with me, so we're going to go over it real <laughs> quick. Um, so this paper is titled Early Feasibility Study in the Limb Flow System for Percutaneous Deep Vein Arterialization in No-Option Chronic Limb-Threatening Ischemia. And this is a 12-month results study. So the authors include Dr. Clare from the University of South Carolina, Dr. Schneider from UCSF, and Dr. Deaton from the University of Pennsylvania. In this trial, we have patients with no-option critical limb-threatening ischemia that were previously offered major amputation they were enrolled in a single-arm early feasibility study of the limb flow percutaneous deep venous arterialization system at uh, seven institutions across the U.S. Of the 32 enrolled patients, 31 were successfully treated with the limb flow system at the time of the procedure. The 30-day, 6-month, and 12-month amputation-free survival rates were 91%, 74%, and 70% respectively. The wound healing status of fully healed or healing was about 70% at 6 months and 75% at 12 months. Reintervention was performed in 16 patients with 14 occurring within the first 3 months. No instant stenosis were determined to have been the cause of reintervention. These results suggest early safety and provide an initial assessment of the efficacy of the limb flow system that can be used in this critically disadvantaged and growing population. Thanks so much, Alex, for coming on the show and sharing that paper with us. Yeah, thanks so much for doing the show and having me on today. 
Curate. This next paper is from Journal of Vascular Surgery. It was titled, Impact of Impaired Ambulatory Capacity on the Outcomes of Peripheral Vascular Interventions Among Patients with Chronic Limb-Threatening Ischemia. Authors include Dr. Malice from UCSD and Dr. Syracuse from Boston University. This retrospective review included 49,000 patients treated for CLTI in the VQI database from 2016 to 2019. About 50% patients were ambulatory and 30% were ambulatory with assistance. There was a two-fold increase in the odds of 30-day death in patients who were ambulatory with assistance and wheelchair-bound, and more than six-fold increase in bedridden patients compared with ambulatory patients there was a significantly higher odds of postoperative complications in patients who were ambulatory with assistance or bedridden, but no difference with wheelchair-bound patients. Among the ambulatory patients, the risks of major amputation and death within one year were 10% and 12% respectively, whereas that of bedridden patients were as high as 30% and 38% respectively. A stepwise decrease in amputation-free survival from 81% with full ambulatory capacity to less than 50% in bedridden patients was observed. They concluded that ambulatory impairment in patients with CLTI is associated with a significant increase in 30-day mortality and significant decrease in amputation-free survival after peripheral vascular interventions. And very briefly, I want to mention this next paper, also from Journal of Vascular Surgery. This was titled, Revascularization of Intermittent Claudicans Leads to More Chronic Limb-Threatening Ischemia and Higher Amputation Rates. Authors included Dr. Madhubushi and Dr. Tyagi from University of Kentucky College of Medicine. This was a single institution retrospective study that reviewed all patients with an initial diagnosis of intermittent claudication between 2003 and 2019. They identified over 1,000 patients who met the inclusion criteria. Of these, 300 had at least one revascularization procedure and 700 did not. They concluded that revascularization of patients with intermittent claudication is associated with an increased risk of progression to CLTI and increased amputation rates. Hmm, that's interesting. Ocean, let's walk a bit faster. Why? Well, I want to measure my pedal acceleration time. I don't think that's how it works, Kiri. Oh. Well, our next paper is titled Pedal Acceleration Time, a Novel Predictor of Limb Salvage, and it's from the Annals of Vascular Surgery. Authors include Dr. Jones from Peace Health Southwest Medical Center in Washington. This was a retrospective review that was performed from 2018 to 2019. They identified 73 limbs with CLTI. Pedal acceleration time measurements were categorized into four classifications. One was 40 to 120 milliseconds, two was 121 to 180 milliseconds, three was 181 to 224 milliseconds, and four was greater than 225 milliseconds. All patients underwent arterial revascularization with either percutaneous techniques or arterial bypass. Limb salvage was achieved in about 80% of the limbs, and they all had a two-classification improvement in their pedal acceleration time following the interventions. A total of about 20% of limbs without improvement in their pedal acceleration time underwent above-ankle-level amputations. The paper concluded that improvement in pedal acceleration time classes to class 1 or 2 is associated with limb salvage, and it should be added as part of the Wi-Fi classification. 
Next one, fresh off the press, is from the JVS November issue, and it's titled Use of Drug-Eluting Stents in Patients with Critical Limb Ischemia and Infrapopliteal Arterial Disease, a Real-World Single-Center Experience. Authors include Dr. Abu Rama from West Virginia University Charleston Division and Dr. Davis from the CAMC Institute for Academic Medicine. A total of 107 limbs with CLTI treated with drug-eluting stents were analyzed. The overall post-operative complication rate was 11% with 2% mortality. Late symptom improvement of one or more Rutherford category was obtained in 71%. The major adverse event rate at 30 days and one year was 12% and 45%, respectively. The major adverse limb events rate at one year was 15%. The overall primary patency rate was 42%. Okay, my friend, further accelerating down this PAD road, this next one is from Annals of Vascular Surgery. The title is A Comparison of Outcomes Based on Vessel Type, Native Artery versus Bypass Graft, and artery location, baloney artery versus non-baloney artery, using a combination of multiple endovascular techniques for acute lower limb ischemia. This was published by Dr. Kumita's group from Nippon Medical School in Tokyo. A total of 95 patients with acute limb ischemia who received emergency endovascular treatment using a combination of multiple endovascular techniques between 2005 and 2017 were included. About 17% of patients underwent a single endovascular technique, whereas 83% underwent a combination of multiple endovascular techniques. The technical success, perioperative death, and acute limb ischemia-related death rates in the total number of patients were 95%, 12%, and 4%, respectively. A total of 67 patients and 28 patients were classified as having native occlusion and graft occlusion, respectively, No significant differences in technical success, periop death, and ALI-related death were noted between the two groups. However, 30-day amputation-free survival rate of native occlusion was significantly lower than that of graft occlusion, and the amputation rate was significantly worse for baloney occlusion patients than for non-baloney occlusion patients. The next paper is from Dr. Biagioni and Dr. Woloskar's group in Brazil, published in JVS. It's titled, Comparison Between Antigrade Common Femoral Artery Access and Superficial Femoral Artery Access in Infrainguinal Endovascular Interventions. In this retrospective study, they analyzed data from over 450 patients with peripheral arterial disease who had undergone peripheral angioplasty from 2009 to 2016. The inclusion criteria were PAD at Rutherford stage 3 to 6 and use of an endovascular approach. 290 patients had undergone SFA puncture and 172 CFA puncture. First puncture access was successful in 99.7% of the SFA group and 97% of the CFA group. The hematoma rate in the SFA and CFA groups were 20% and 11% respectively. The incidence of major bleeding and clinically relevant non-major bleeding was not significantly different between the two groups. Female sex and older age were associated with an increased hematoma rate. They concluded that while SFA access was associated with a higher overall rate of hematoma, no significant difference was found in the incidence of major bleeding between the two access sites. Planned SFA access can be considered as an alternative to CFA access. And that concludes our episode. Links to all of the papers can be found in the description below. Thank you all for joining us again this month as we floated down the aortic river and got lodged in the lower extremity. So you're saying we're a bunch of emboli? I like to think of us as Fremboli. What? Yeah, like friendly emboli. <laughs> okay, no. 
Alright, well, we appreciate everyone's support. Follow us on the Yale Vascular Surgery's Twitter for updates and subscribe to our podcast, Yale Vascular Review, on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. Please leave any comments and feedback on our Yale Vascular Twitter or Instagram, and we hope that you will continue to share this resource with your colleagues. And remember, if you like, share, comment, or subscribe, we will be drawing one name for a special gift every episode. And our winner from last month is... Alexandra Manningit. Thank you, Alexandra, for liking our post last month. Thank you all for joining us today, and we'll be back next month with a new topic. And Kiuri, until then, keep walking. And don't claudicate. Mm-hmm.